The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is from John chapter 16, starting in the second half of verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will, know, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The word of God for the people of God. All right, well, if you have a Bible, John 16 is where we'll be. If you're using one of the Bibles under your seat, it's page 848. Uh, As you turn there, uh, I want to remind you, I don't know what you're bringing into this room this morning. Uh, I just know that every single week, every one of us brings our whole life with us, right? And so there's a lot of things going on in us and around us that aren't always transparent to the people around you and that you bring in here with burdens and concerns and those kinds of things. And so... Every week at the end of the service, we just mentioned that there's going to be some people up front available to pray if you need that. I just want to encourage you uh, to take advantage of that as you would like to. Um, Prayer is one of the ways that we commune with God and with each other and one of the ways that we bear one another's burdens. And so Dusty will mention at the end of today, hey, there will be some people up front uh, able and willing to pray with you and just want to continue to encourage you. That's a great way to take advantage of the presence of God and the power of God and the word of God on a morning like this, when you might be bringing things in here with you that uh, the sermon will address in some way, but that you need to to encounter God in a deeper way about. So feel free to come and receive prayer uh, after the service if that would minister to you, either this week or any week to come. Um, Every week when I stand up here to, to preach, to teach the Bible, I experience a certain kind of tension in my soul. Because on the one hand, I want to preach to the world. Right? I'm always thinking about how to speak to our city. I mean, I realize we have a podcast, we have a website, there's a thing called YouTube. I'm always talking to more people than are just right here in this room. And, and I want to be talking to more people than are right here in this room. I, I want to be speaking in meaningful ways to people in our city that aren't here yet. Uh, when I prepare a sermon, I'm thinking of people like my neighbor, Eric, and like my barber, Will. Like my friend Margaret, I'm trying to imagine, how are these things going to land with them? I want um, 
what I say to make sense to them, and I want the gospel of Jesus to be compelling um, to them. And I hope that's part of what you appreciate about our ministry here at Coram Deo, is that, that sort of city-minded intentionality. that You can bring a neighbor, a friend, a family member along and, and have some sense of confidence that they're not going to feel like an outsider, that they're not going to feel like they're coming into a room where, where this isn't really for them. Because no matter who you are, no matter what you think about God, um, we're all human beings living in the same world, as Dusty just reminded us a few minutes ago. And so I'm always trying to communicate and think about communication as a human being living with other human beings in the same world and trying to talk meaningfully about that world and about the God who made it. So I want to preach to the world. And on the other hand, I understand that being a Christian sets me in tension in certain ways with the way the world thinks and operates. The Christian faith is in every way a countercultural kind of faith. And so there's things about it that just don't make sense to the world. Um, there's always things about Christianity that just seem odd uh, to the world's way of thinking. And so when you come into the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus, there's ways in which it sets you in tension with the world, and you kind of feel that. And so on the one hand, I want to preach to the world. On the other hand, I realize the gospel sets me at odds with the world in certain ways. And so there's certain things, no matter how faithfully and helpfully I try to communicate them, they're just going to sound weird. Like the hope of the world is a guy who died on a cross. Like the resurrection really happened. Like there's a new heavens and a new earth coming. There's just ways in which those things sound weird, right? To a world that has a whole different way of making sense of reality. To say it another way, you could say it like this. The gospel is both a message of fulfillment and a message of subversion. On the one hand, the gospel is the fulfillment of our deepest hopes and longings and dreams, right? Jesus says things like, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so for those of us who feel the burden of being human, for those of us who've begun to realize that nothing in this world can really satisfy us, then that means we're on the verge of hope. As St. Augustine famously said, God has made us for himself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in him. The gospel is a message of fulfillment, of the, the fullness of our humanity coming into fruition. The gospel, however, is also a message of sub subversion. Right At the same time, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. Jesus also says, take up your cross and follow me, which is a metaphor of death to self. The kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. The way up, Jesus says, is the way down. The way of victory is the road of suffering. The last will be first. The poor are those who are truly rich. The humble will be exalted. And so in, in a sense, the gospel takes everything and turns it on its head. It's a message of subversion. And this tension is on display in the farewell discourse in the Gospel of John. It's called the Farewell Discourse because Jesus is saying farewell to his disciples. He's leaving them and going to the cross, and he's trying to set their expectations. Uh, your parents probably did this when they went on a trip. If you have kids, maybe you've done this. If you've gone on a trip, 
Uh, the longest trip I've ever been on is when my wife Lee and I traveled to China back in 2007 to adopt our daughter Grace. And we had to be in country for 12 days, which meant the trip was about 14 days, including travel. And so we left our three older kids in the care of my mom and dad, and they were really little at that time. So, you know, before we left, I sat the three kids down and I tried to frame their expectations, right? The first thing I wanted them to know is we're going to be gone a long time. I mean, two weeks is going to feel really long, especially to a small child, right? You're going to go through two cycles of going to church on Sunday and doing school and, right, like all your normal activities are going to happen twice because we've been gone for two weeks. And it's going to feel to you like, where are mom and dad and why are they still gone? So if you feel that, it's okay. That's normal. Expect that. Trying to prepare their expectations. And the other thing I did, obviously, for the sake of my mom and dad's sanity, is I said, hey, look, the rules are the same when we're gone. Like the rules don't change because mom and dad aren't here. So don't be trying to eat ice cream for breakfast. Don't be asking if you can stay up till midnight. Don't be trying to work your grandparents because they seem nicer than your parents. They're not nicer. I grew up with them just like you grew up with me. And they are going to manage and hold to the same rules. So just expect that, right? I'm trying to set my kids' expectations so that as we go on this trip, they can flourish in the world. And in some way, that's kind of what Jesus is doing with his disciples. He's trying to help set their expectations so that they know what to expect as he goes to the cross. And one of the things he wants to help them understand is the nature of their relationship with the world. And so here's kind of the big idea both of the text and of the sermon this morning. It's this, to be a Christian is to be against the world for the world. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit, Christians are against the world for the world. And so here's the sermon outline this morning. I want to ask the question, what is the world? How are Christians against the world? And how are Christians for the world? You can see from looking at this text, the subject of the text is the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And in a sense, this sermon is kind of part two of the message that Justin preached last week. Last week he said, God's chosen people are promised both conflict and comfort. This week we see why that is true. And it all has to do with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Christians are both against the world and for the world. So, Let's begin by asking this question. What is the world? This is one of John's trademark phrases. If you read the Bible, you will notice that the Apostle John uses the phrase the world more than any other biblical author. Over a hundred times in the writings of John, we find this reference to the world. And in John, this phrase has three layers of meaning. The first thing John could be talking about when he talks about the world is the created order created reality. Um, we see this in John 16, verse 28, where Jesus says, I came from the Father and have come into the world. Now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. He's talking about the incarnation. He's talking about that, as John told us in chapter one, the word which was in the beginning with God and, and was God took on flesh and entered into human time and space and history, entered into the created order. So sometimes when John speaks of the world, he's talking about created reality. Sometimes he's talking about humanity. In other words, all human beings without exclusion. 
John wants you to understand that the message that he is bringing is not for one group of people, one culture of people, one class or race or tribe of people, but for everyone. And so sometimes John speaks of the world as a way of referring to humanity in general. John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You can see the, the wide offer of the gospel there. Hey, this is for anyone who will believe. The third thing John means when he speaks of the world, the third layer of meaning, is sometimes he's referring to fallen human society. Um, the system of living and thinking and relating that we human beings create together under the influence of sin. John 15, verse 19, Jesus says to his disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He's, he's describing the world as sort of the, the fallen human way of living and relating to one another. And he says, I've, I've pulled you out of that and I've brought you into my kingdom. That third meaning is the one that applies in this passage. When Jesus talks about the world, he's talking about a set of values and influences and assumptions that define the world's way of thinking. It's basically, think about it this way, the way people think and live and operate in their natural way of thinking and operating. Um, Charles Taylor is a Canadian philosopher who I think can be helpful to us here. Uh, Charles Taylor was unhappy with philosophers using the term worldview because he thought worldview seems like a very cognitive, very cerebral, very reflective thing, right? It's like I've thought about it and I've come to a view of the world. And Charles Taylor felt like that, that doesn't do justice to how our view of things actually is shaped. And so he invented this phrase in his writing called the social imaginary it's kind of a weird, wonky term, but here's what he means. What he means is the way you see the world is social. Like you didn't just sit in your corner of your house and read books until you figured out how to view the world. This has been given to you from your society. Where you grew up affects how you see the world. The family you grew up in affects how you see the world. What your society thinks affects how you think. None of us is a blank slate. Every one of us has been shaped by the social world that we live in. And second, the way you see the world is less a matter of thinking and more a matter of imagination. It's subconscious more than conscious. It's the things we take for granted. It's the assumptions we make that are totally invisible to us. When Jesus talks about the world, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about these invisible assumptions that we all have that are shaped by the society around us and by a society that is committed to self-reliance and self-dependence rather than to reliance upon God. I mean, think about some examples. When's the last time you saw a romantic movie where the characters didn't sleep together? When's the last time you saw an advertisement or heard an advertisement encouraging you to buy less and save more? When's the last time your smartphone prompted you to turn off notifications? It's like, are we notifying you too much? Would you like to turn them off? 
That's never happened. It always says, would you like to turn on notifications? That's, those kinds of things are the world. It's all these little nudges that push us in certain directions and that shape our behaviors and our desires and our ways of thinking. Now, there are people behind all those influences, right? There are directors making those movies. There are executives running those companies. There are software developers making those smartphone apps. And yet, these things also kind of take on a life of their own, don't they? The world is a bigger thing than the people in the world. And you have to understand that to understand what Jesus is saying. When he speaks harshly about the world, he's not saying human beings are bad. Now, we are bad because we're sinners and we need to repent. But what Jesus is saying when he talks about the world, he's saying people create a thing, a system of relating, a way of seeing life that kind of takes on a life of its own. We intuitively know this because we use shorthand like this. We speak of Hollywood or Wall Street or big tech. These are ways of saying there's something bigger going on here than just individual human beings doing individual human things. There's a way this part of the world, there's a way Hollywood thinks and a way Wall Street thinks and a way big tech thinks. It sort of takes on a life of its own. So what is the world? It's that. It's fallen human society. It's the way that human beings relate to and see and shape and influence one another under the effects of the fall and sin. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, hey, I called you out of the world. So when the gospel comes into your life, when Jesus Christ comes to save you and change you, he, he pulls you out of that way of thinking and sort of gives you a new set of glasses. And now you see the world differently and that sets you then at odds with the world. So let's ask the second question. Now, if that's what the world is, how are Christians against the world? Go up the page a little bit to chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, and, and let me draw your attention to four things that you're going to see reinforced in our passage. John 15, 26 says this, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I want you to notice four things here, or maybe three things. I said four, but I mean three, all right? Notice three things. Number one, notice that the Holy Spirit is called the helper and the spirit of truth. You're going to see him called those same two things in verses eight and following. Okay, so these, when, when Jesus speaks of who is the Holy Spirit, he says the spirit is the helper, the spirit is the spirit of truth. Notice those two designations. Second, notice that in speaking about the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, whom I will send to you. So Jesus is the one who, upon his authority, sends the Holy Spirit. And this is speaking to the Spirit's role in redemptive history. As we looked at a few weeks ago, until Jesus dies on the cross and is resurrected from the dead and ascends back into heaven, not until then does he pour out the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's role in redemptive history comes after the work of Jesus. And so Jesus says, I'm going back to the Father and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. However, notice also that he says, the spirit of truth proceeds from the Father. This is speaking of the spirit's unique relationship of personhood within the Trinity. So the spirit is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Son, but the spirit is distinct from the person of the Father and the person of the Son. 
The Spirit proceeds from the Father. That is the mode of his existence. That is what is unique and distinct about the Holy Spirit. And keep in mind, this proceeding is not a proceeding forth in time, as though the Father existed first, and then the Holy Spirit came into existence later. Rather, it is a proceeding in relationship and in activity. So Jesus says, I'm going to send the Spirit, but the Spirit proceeds from the Father. And then third, notice that this language of bearing witness. He says, the Spirit will bear witness about me, and you also, disciples, will bear witness. So the Spirit is going to bear witness, and you will bear witness. And what Jesus is saying is this. The work of the Holy Spirit in bearing witness to the world about Jesus takes place through human beings. Like the Spirit is bearing witness as you bear witness and through you bearing witness. And by the way, the word bear witness is a big phrase here. It doesn't just mean talking to that guy at work about Jesus. It does include that, but it includes much more than that. Listen, if you're a Christian, think about this. How did you become a Christian? Two things happened in your life. Number one, you heard the gospel message from another human being. Or maybe from the work of another human being. Maybe you read a book. Maybe you were handed an article or a link to something. Maybe like one guy, I don't know how this happens, but you became a Christian by watching Christian TV. I didn't even know that could happen. But apparently God even uses that. So, so in some way you came in contact with the gospel message through a person. That's the first thing that happened. And second, the Holy Spirit worked in your soul to awaken faith. So, so there was a Holy Spirit thing that happened in you, an awakening of faith and trust in Jesus, and also something that happened through the means of another human being. And Jesus is saying, well, of course, that's how witness works. There's the Holy Spirit, and there's the Spirit's work through God's people. Okay, so that all sets up the same dynamics that we see in this morning's text in John 16, verses 7 through 11. Let's read it together, and I want you to notice how similar it is to John 15, verses 26 and 27. Jesus says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So Jesus says here, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now I think at first glance, when we hear those words, we hear them through the lens of our own conversion experience. Because if you are a Christian, you can remember that before you were a Christian, what happened is you experienced the conviction of sin. You experienced the Holy Spirit convicting you of your sin, and you understood God's judgment upon sin, and that's what brought you to faith in Jesus, right? You understood that you were a sinner, that you stood under the judgment of a holy and righteous God because of sin, and that by faith in Jesus, you could be forgiven of your sin and set free from the power of sin. And so when I think, when most of us read these words and we hear the word convict, that's what we think about, our own conversion. But listen, Jesus is talking about something different from that. Look again at the verse. Who is the Holy Spirit convicting? It says, when he comes, he will convict the world. So go back to our three definitions. 
Is the Holy Spirit convicting the created order? Is it the grass and the trees and the planets that need to be convicted of sin? No. Is the Holy Spirit convicting all of humanity? Well, kind of, but not in the exact same way that he convicted you, because there are people everywhere who do not trust in Jesus. The conviction talked about here, the Holy Spirit is convicting fallen human society. The Holy Spirit is rendering judgment on our ways of thinking and relating, the world's way of doing things. The word convict here might better be understood as exposing or showing to be false. Here's an analogy that I think will help you. Have you ever seen one of those TV shows where uh, they take like an ultraviolet light to someone's kitchen sink or bathroom? Uh, and, you know, they just show the normal camera shot, and it's like, oh, that's sparkling clean. What a beautiful kitchen. I would love that kitchen. Can I get those remodelers to come in and make my kitchen look like that, right? It always looks great in the original camera shot. And then they, like, turn off the lights and turn on the UV light, and you see, like, bacteria, germs. Every it's like, this place is disgusting, right? What they're doing is exposing the actual microbiological realities that have been there the whole time. You just can't see them. In the same way, that's what the Spirit is doing here. See, the world around us, the world around you has a vision of sin. They have a sense of what is righteous. And they've made a judgment about what's right and wrong, what's true and false, what's real and not real. And Jesus has come to show that the world's way of evaluating all those things is entirely upside down. And it's the crucifixion that shows this most starkly, right? Realize what happened in Jesus' death. Jesus was, first of all, condemned as a sinner. He was pronounced unrighteous by the religious leaders of his day. They said, what you are doing is not of God, it's of the evil one. You're an evil person. And then he was judged by the Roman authorities and sent to the cross, and when you read that story, you know the whole thing is unjust. You read it and you realize they're seeing it completely upside down. They're condemning an innocent man. It's evident. In the cross of Jesus Christ, in the crucifixion, the world is convicted. The world's way of seeing and reckoning with what's going on in Jesus is shown to be false. And that's the same work the Holy Spirit is carrying forward. I want to read you an extended quote from Leslie Newbegin, who helps us understand the dynamic in, in the text here. Newbegin writes this, according to John 3, verse 20, the light exposes the deeds of evil men. In the same way, the Holy Spirit exposes the falsity of the world's most fundamental ideas. Sin, righteousness, judgment. These three related words stand for something which belongs to the universal stock of human ideas. All people everywhere have ideas of right and wrong, and all people draw the line somewhere to mark off and to judge what has to be condemned. The world understands sin as a revolt against its own standards and ideals. But the revelation of the presence of God in a man condemned as a sinner is the overthrowing of the world's idea of what sin is. According to the world's standard of righteousness, Jesus was found to be in the wrong by the highest judicial authorities of the church and state. But in the higher tribunal of the Father, he was found to be in the right. 
The world has its own idea about judgment. But the one who had come as the bearer of God's kingly rule was condemned. And in that act of judgment, the ruler of the world was judged. God's people will be the bearers of that kingship, which overturns all the world's ideas of judgment. This is what it means, you see, that Christians are against the world. We don't have anything against the people of the world. They are human beings made in the image of God. They are our neighbors and friends and family members. But we do have a quarrel with the world's way of seeing and reckoning with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is at work in the world exposing the falsity of the world's way of thinking. And part of how the Holy Spirit does that work, here's what the text is pointing out to you. Part of how the Holy Spirit does that work is through the existence of Christians. The fact that there is in the world a little alternative society that lives under the rule and reign of King Jesus, the very existence of that people convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. In every city in the world, there are little communities of God's people saying, the way the world sees this is upside down and backwards. Your existence in the world is part of the Holy Spirit's work to convict the world. Listen, this is why your neighbors both appreciate you and feel a little bit awkward around you. This is why your work associates like working with you, but don't always want to bring you along for happy hour. This is why your friends at school enjoy your presence, but the conversation around the lunch table gets a little weird when you're around. This is why your non-Christian family members love you, but also sometimes don't want the conversation to get too deep. They're not reacting to you. They're reacting to the Holy Spirit's work through your presence. The Spirit of God uses your existence to expose the folly of the world's way of thinking. And therefore, to be a Christian in the world is kind of always going to come with a certain kind of tension. Three weeks ago, February 21st, at the Ivy League Championships, University of Pennsylvania swimmer Leah Thomas had a banner day. Thomas set six records and won three individual events, the 500 freestyle, the 200 freestyle, and the 100 freestyle. No other woman in the pool even came close to beating Leah Thomas. And there's a reason for that. Leah Thomas is a biological male who spent three seasons competing on the men's swim team before transitioning in 2019. Now, right now in our culture, there's an accepted way of responding to stories like that. It's a sin not to applaud that. You're unrighteous if you refuse to do so, and you'll be judged. Why is the pressure so intense right now in particular places like that? Here's why. Because the mere existence of Christians in the world exposes some of the flaws and follies in the world's way of thinking. The fact that there's a community of people who would say at the same time, that's a human being made in the image of God. 
And also that's not right or good or fair. The fact that both of those things can, can coexist in a community of people exposes the possibility that the, that the world is wrong in its judgment, in its way of thinking about these things. And that's why it's inconvenient for the world that you exist. The existence of a community that joyfully and winsomely says in lots of areas, yeah, that's not the way it ought to be, convicts the world of its false notions of sin and righteousness and judgment. Listen, as Leslie Newbigin said, this stock of words, sin, righteousness, and judgment, these are moral categories. These have to do with right and wrong, what we judge to be true and accurate and good and right, and what we judge to be false and wrong. And the world's way of thinking about these things is different than the kingdom of God, and that always is going to set us in conflict. Being a Christian means you will always be standing on these fault lines. There will always be places where you are at odds with the world around you. And Jesus is saying, hey, that's not about you. It's about what the Holy Spirit is doing. Your existence, my existence, our existence is part of his voice in the world. So because of the work of the Holy Spirit, because of the fact that God through his spirit is at work in the world, means Christians are against the world. But listen, this is very important. We are against the world for the world. If you have a friend or a family member who is an addict, you know that sometimes you have to be against them in order to be for them, right? You know that because you are actually for them and for their good, they're going to experience you at a certain place in their life as against them. Because you actually are against them, but not because you're against them, because you're for them. And so you have to be against what they think they want or see or need in some particular area of life. The same thing is at play in this passage. Jesus is not saying, hey, Christians are hostile to the world and annoyed with the world and angry with the world and against the world. What he's saying is Christians are for the world and that requires them to be against the world in certain ways. So, point three, how are we for the world? Look again at verses 12 and 13. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. I want to draw your attention to the word truth. Notice the spirit is called the spirit of truth. The work of the Spirit is to guide you, Jesus' disciples, into all the truth. And truth, you see, is a public good. Now, I know that the general belief in our age is that truth is relative, right? You can have your truth, and I can have my truth, and we can all get along. The folly of that way of thinking is relatively easy to demonstrate, right? When people say things like, there's no such thing as absolute truth that's true for everybody everywhere. What you should ask is, is that statement true? The statement, there is no truth, is itself a statement of absolute truth, and you can't make that statement unless truth is absolute. That's how awesome relativism is as a philosophical worldview. 
There was a professor at Creighton here in the first service. He's like, well, thanks for answering all my students' questions about relatives. It really is kind of that simple. Among serious philosophers, there's really not even a question that this is not a serious moral philosophy. It's more of a mood than an intellectual standing ground. But because we live in a moment pervaded by that mood, when Christians talk about Jesus coming to earth and dying on the cross and rising from the dead, the people around us, the world around us, sometimes hear us saying something like this. I find the story of Jesus to be personally meaningful. Like you say to your neighbor, hey, man, I believe Jesus came to earth and died on the cross and rose from dead. And what your neighbor hears you saying is, I find the story of Jesus to be personally meaningful and satisfying for me at this moment. But listen, that's not what we're saying. That's not what the scriptures are saying. That's not what the message of the gospel is. The gospel is not a matter of personal taste. It's a matter of public truth. Christianity does not proclaim back in the first century, a small band of Jewish people had a meaningful personal experience. That's not what the gospel says. What, what Christianity says is that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified under Pontius Pilate. That's like saying Russia invaded Ukraine under Vladimir Putin. It's anchoring something at a particular time, at a particular moment, under a particular governmental leader. It's talking about something that took place in history and that is on the public record. No one would say this week, you know, I mean, think whatever you want about Ukraine. The real thing that matters is whether you find it personally meaningful. No one would say that right now. People are dying. Cities are being bombed. The whole world is on alert. Nobody cares how you feel about it. Nobody cares your subjective response to that. What matters is there's a matter of public truth that requires us to act or to react in certain ways, whether you feel certain things about it or not. In the same way, friends, listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a matter of public truth. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. He's going to guide the disciples into the truth. And they're going to bear witness to the truth. And the truth is on the public record. It happened at a time and in a place during a particular season in history. And that truth is good news for the world. The good news of the gospel is that the redemption of the world has begun. That the forgiveness of sins is available. That the kingdom of God has come. That the ruler of this world has been cast out and overthrown by King Jesus. And now his kingdom of goodness and peace and beauty and righteousness is here and is available and open to all who, are, who will enter into it by faith. You see, Christianity is a fundamentally good news message for the world. It's a matter of truth. We as Christians stand in the world and we say, this is true, this really happened, and it is for you. It is good news for the world. Christians do not need political enemies to fight, though your timeline on Facebook might make you think differently. We do not need atheists to argue with. We do not need the world out there to oppose us so that we can define ourselves in opposition to them. We have a message of good news for the world and always have. And it's a message that speaks to every culture, every time, every place, every people, the only reason we are against the world in any way 
is because we are for the world. We're against the world the way you're against your brother's drug habit or your child's selfishness or your best friend's bad relationship. We're against pornography because we are for the kingdom of God and the beautiful and joyful vision of human sexuality that it gives. We're against greed because we are for the kingdom of God and for the right of every human being to reap the benefits of their own labor. We are against unlimited consumption and consumerism because we are for the kingdom of God, which calls us to stewardship of the world God has made. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit, Christians are against the world for the world. And you can see, can't you, how this keeps the gospel at the center of our lives. Because listen, apart from the grace of God, apart from the gospel, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, every one of us is either a contrarian or a conformist. Some of you are contrarians, right? You thrive on debate, conflict. You like being the minority, being the only person in the room who holds a particular position. In fact, you kind of like that. You'd rather be the underdog. You come alive when people want to argue. Some guy in the front row over here is like, I almost said, no, I don't. Then I realized, I guess I am that. (laughs) Others of you are conformists, right? You, You want to keep the peace. You want to get along. You'd rather not stand out in a crowd. You'd rather not draw attention to yourself, right? Let's all just get along. If the church was made up only of contrarians, we'd lose the winsomeness of the gospel, wouldn't we? You could see how God's people would become defensive, argumentative, combative. If the church was made up only of conformists, we'd lose the challenge of the gospel, wouldn't we? You can see how we'd become enmeshed and convictionless. Can't you see that those are the two trends in the church? But what the Holy Spirit does through the gospel is to take both contrarians and conformists and change them and turn them into something different. What the Holy Spirit doesn't do is take 50% of the contrarians and 50% of the conformists and throw them in a room together. That's not what the gospel is. What the gospel is the Spirit of God taking people who are naturally contrarians or naturally conformists and transforming them into something different than both of those by guiding them into all the truth. Look again at verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you, disciples, the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You do realize, don't you, friends, that the fulfillment to this promise is right underneath your chair this morning, or maybe it's sitting on your lap already. Dr. Scott Swain observes the gospel of John itself is a literary testament to the Spirit's fulfillment of this promise. When Jesus says the Spirit is going to hear and speak and declare, he's describing how the scriptures came to be written. How did we get these? We got them because the disciples of Jesus heard the words of the Spirit and wrote them down. Remember, John's been telling us all along, yeah, yeah, when Jesus did that, we didn't really get it in the moment. It only made sense later. Are you amazed how many times he says that? 
At this moment, the disciples didn't understand, but then later we did, right? So Jesus is saying, hey, after the resurrection, I'm going to send the spirit of truth to bring to your remembrance what I've said, to take what's mine and declare it to you, to glorify me by reminding you of everything I've taught, and to commit it to the public record. Friends, this is no stale, ancient, outdated book. This is the, word of, this is the public record of the life and death of Jesus Christ. This is the word of God breathed out by the Holy Spirit that shows us the glory of Jesus Christ by telling us the gospel story. So here's what happens. As we read about God's redeeming grace, as we consider the life and teachings of Jesus Christ, as we see him betrayed and condemned and crucified, as we read of his glorious resurrection, we see the folly of the world's judgment about Jesus. And we're brought back again to the glory of an upside-down kingdom where loss is gain, where weakness is strength, where death is life, where sorrow turns into joy, and where ashamed despised, crucified Savior is the world's true and glorious King. That's the message. That's the good news that sets us against the world for the world. Let's worship Christ now together in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this promise We thank you for the gift of the spirit of truth who guides us into all truth. And we embrace the reality that because the spirit dwells in your people, we are for the world and yet also against the world. And we confess to you this morning that sometimes it's a real joy to represent you in the world and sometimes it's challenging. Sometimes it's easy and fun to be a voice for you in the world and sometimes it's not fun at all. So thank you, Holy Spirit, that you exist and have been given from the Father by the Lord Jesus to strengthen us, to guide us into the truth, and to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So help us stand joyfully in the tension that you ask us to walk in, belonging to you, yet existing in a world that sees things upside down. Give us joy in moments of confusion, in moments of persecution, in moments where we feel the tension of what it means to be your people. Let us live in hope, in joy, and in victory because of your presence in us and your work through us. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.